was a week before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. But can we really be sure no ants were stirring? How could you even tell? And what about a teeny tiny little adventurer who is only the size of an ant? Could he be stirring this night so close to Christmas? I think we should find out. Ho ho hello, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays everybody, and welcome to a special holiday-themed episode of Find Your Joy. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me this time to talk about one of my favorite stories about one of my favorite characters is the once and future podcaster, the second pride of Waverly, Iowa, Kyle Benning. What's up, Kyle? Not a whole lot. I'm just enjoying uh, some hot apple cider here, uh, sitting next to my Christmas tree and listening to my three children uh, fight bedtime <laughs> over on the other side of the house. Hopefully that doesn't come through the mic. But. You can hear it a little bit, but it's, it's cute. It just adds some of the ambiance. Um, yeah, it, it never stops. <laughs> I, one of them is still making noise. Seriously, welcome back. This is our second Christmas collaboration this year. Uh, the first being your guest spot on Midnight, the podcasting hour a couple of weeks ago. This time we are covering the Marvel Comics one-shot Ant-Man's Big Christmas. And the sound you just heard is David Ace Gutierrez turning this podcast off in favor of a show about... I don't know, some underappreciated Texas rock band or something. Whatever it is. Yes, we're talking about Ant-Man. Believe it or not, he got his own prestige format Christmas special from Marvel Knights, no less, in 1999. But before we get into the story, Kyle, you have talked about your love of Christmas comics and Christmas in comics. Uh, You have mentioned it on your own podcast and others. That's kind of the whole reason why I asked you to be on the show. But... What is your experience with Ant-Man and the Wasp? How and when did you discover them? Yes, I'm trying to think. Um, you know, obviously, uh, depending on what era of Avengers you're first exposed to, you might not have been exposed to both members of the team at the same time. And, you know, I'm trying to think. Uh, it was probably, honestly, the my, my favorite run of Avengers is the uh, Kurt Busiek, George Perez a run. And it was probably picking that up. It was my first exposure to it, and then you kind of read between the lines, and you pick up uh, a lot of the character development, what was going on, and that right then was the uh, beginning of the boom of the internet, so you do a little research, and mm-hmm. have the whole lead-up to the trial of Hank Pym and everything, and kind of kind of understand that, I guess. Um, and so that was probably my, my first exposure to the two of them, and uh, around that time is when Toy Biz uh, Marvel Legends figures were coming out, and I remember uh, when I was in high school driving to my local Walmart, and being able to buy those for five dollars and eighty-three cents <laughs> compared to the twenty dollars now, and uh, because they were so cheap and affordable, and there uh, it was not a comic book shop in Waverly. It was uh, in Cedar Falls, just about thirty miles away uh, from where I live, north of town. So a lot of these like classic uh, comics that came as reprints with the uh, Marvel Legends figures were more enticing to me than the figure themselves. So I'd buy the figure just to get the comic reprint side, and so. You know, maybe the kind of the more classic pairing, which you would have, uh, I believe it was in the Yellow Jacket costume at that time, was probably the uh, Avengers reprint uh, that came with uh, the Black Panther figure, which I believe was in the uh, Galactus Build-A-Figure wave, mm-hmm. which is like around wave six or so. Uh, I want to say, is that maybe Avengers 87? Is that the origin of T'Challa told the uh, Avengers? 87? That seems later, but it probably was. 87, 77, I don't know. I think it was something to end with a seven, but uh, it was right around that time. And so kind of that, uh, that was probably the first, well, definitely the first time I, I read that that story, uh, you know, and kind of been alluded to a little bit in the Fantastic Four cartoon uh, with their adaption of the uh, intro of the Black Panther. But uh, 
that was probably kind of my my classic uh, Silver Age uh, Avengers introduction to Hank Pym and, and Jan, and then um, kind of getting that that backdrop of uh, the context of uh, doing the you know the research. Uh, on the internet there late 90s uh, early 2000s kind of understanding their uh, troubled history at times and then rereading the uh, Busick and uh, Perez run of Avengers kind of through that lens I really latched onto the characters because I, I really thought that was a great run that went to redeeming Hank and really worked on the relationship a lot and uh, this gorgeous uh, little uh, <laughs> Ant-Man Christmas special here uh, I don't think would have been possible without that kind of image repair I guess done mm-hmm. um, for sure, uh, by Busick. And then, of course, right around this time, then they launched the Ultimate Lines, and uh, Mark Miller, you know, he just has to, like, pick that one nasty <laughs> incident and uh, run it into the ground. So, um, unfortunately, uh, Hank just can't seem to uh, outlive uh, that moment. So, that's unfortunate. Between that and uh, creating Ultron, he's kind of got two black eyes that he might not ever uh, fully get over. Right, right, yeah, yeah. My first exposure to Ant-Man was actually was actually Scott Lang, not uh, not uh, Hank, and I first saw him in the Marvel Universe Series Three trading card from 1992. It was the uh, Impel line uh, that had all the Starscape background that connected like ten ten cards across. And I just I I've said it before, but I just I loved his helmet. I thought he had just a really cool, really fun design. I, I dug the helmet so much. But at the time, there wasn't a regular Ant-Man book at the shelf. And at the time, just being kind of just a novice collector, I didn't have the wherewithal or the desire at the time to go back issue hunting for for him or other characters unless they were mutants, really. Years later, I saw Ant-Man, again, it was the Scott Lang version, on the cover of Silver Surfer 95. Um, That was a title that I seemed to get like almost every other issue for about a year. And uh, he was, it was him and the Human Torch and the Thing on the cover of Silver Surfer. It was like a new Fantastic Four or something like that. So that was kind of my first time reading about him. And then, as, as you said, it kind of like I, I started to like pick up bits of the the Busiek Perez Avengers run and everything like that. And again, I was very spotty and just kind of occasionally picking up the book and and not really like hooking into it until it was actually right around the time Perez was leaving the book is when I really kind of got into that book a uh, whole. But uh, that was when I really first met Hank Pym and, and Janet and kind of got into their their relationship and at the same time as you said kind of being able to do research online um and then got the essential astonishing ant-man you know black and white phone book edition that they had so i could read all of their early early adventures um and yeah i, I mean I, I i've joked about it but i was one of the few people who was really excited about the ant-man movies and the promise of those um even though they took a lot of liberties for various reasons based on on the characters of Hank and Scott and sort of like changed their relationship, changed the the nature of the characters a little bit. I think the changes that they made, they were still in service of a fun and entertaining movie. So, yeah, I'm still very much an Ant-Man fan. I like the character. Have they ever released any drafts of, God, who was the uh, famous director that was attached to Ant-Man? Edgar Wright, yeah, and then left. I wonder how much of the changes they were forcing on him were character changes versus plot changes. (sighs) That's a good question. I don't know. And I have a... I mean, maybe in interviews he could elaborate on that if he wanted to, but I doubt... Disney would ever release anything. I mean, they're like loath to release deleted and cut scenes unless they're like highly like scrutinized and everything like that. So, 
I, yeah. I would be very surprised if they ever released like any sort of official like the Edgar Wright draft or cut or well, it wouldn't be a cut because he never started shooting, but maybe I mean maybe interviews with him could probably give you the best like idea of of what he wanted to do with the character. I do love uh, Ant Man's helmet as well, the the classic uh, helmet. Uh, it was nice to see that in game make an appearance there. Yes, yeah, and, and I oh. talked about it with I talked about it with uh, Diablo Frank on his uh, his Marvel Handbook podcast episode. That the thing that I one of the things about Ant Man's helmet, and we were kind of discussing you know the the difference between Ant Man and the Atom, the DC universe character who can shrink down. I like the Atom too, and Frank loves him even more. He's one of his favorite DC characters, I think. But even Frank had to concede that nothing about the Atom's costume and appearance tells you what his power set is. But as soon as you look at Ant-Man's helmet and his costume, you know what his shtick is. Because the helmet looks like insectoid like the way like the almost like mandibles come around to create like the mouthpiece and everything in the antenna. So I will say if uh, anybody out there in listener land has a decent size 3D printer, if you go to thingiverse.com, so that's the word thing, the letter I, verse, all one word, dot com, people upload just free models and programs that you can 3D print from. There is a life-size classic Ant-Man helmet on there. Now, depending on what type of printer you have and the resolution capability, that's probably somewhere in like a 100 to 150 hour print job. It's probably only, though, about $15 worth of material wow. to print. Um, so it's out there, available. We have a lot of those types of printers at work. Uh, that's actually the website that, if you've seen on Twitter, I have a pretty kick-ass uh, Rocketeer helmet that I printed on one of our printers at work. So same site, Thingiverse, that I got the, the Rocketeer helmet program from. But uh, I'm on the list uh, to get on the 3D printer uh, over our – we have a factory shutdown um, It'll be like 12 or 13 days uh, long this year over Christmas and New Year's. And so uh, I should get some 3D printer time there and be able to knock that helmet out, hopefully over break. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. That'd be cool. Cool. Yeah. All right, uh, folks, we are going to take a short little promo break right now. And after that is over, Kyle and I are going to show you why family is the absolute worst thing at Christmas, but also the best. It is all after this break, so stick around. Hi, everybody. My name's Hub, and I host a show called Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. Every week, we read either a Defenders comic book from the 70s or a New Teen Titans comic from the 80s. I give a synopsis of that comic that I have handcrafted to amuse and inform, and then my good-for-many-things brother Corey comes over and we talk about what we found interesting about the comic we just read. It's a lot of fun, and we hope you'll join us for it. Anything you'd like to add, Corey? I like cocaine from an animal's butthole. Mm. It is. So good. It is. Paradise. Well, Corey, I don't really think that's appropriate. We're trying to do a promotion for our podcast here. Shut up. Okay, fair enough. Any final thoughts? Of course. Well, let's hear them. I have eaten all the beaver butt. (laughs) You have eaten none. And beaver's butt is pretty good. There you have it. Tighten up the defense. That's T-I-T-A-N. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. It's probably worth mentioning. I'm the one who does the editing. Catch the wave of the future and hang 10 on it with us. Cowabunga.
Batman's Big Christmas has a cover date of February 2000, but the actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing, was December 8th, 1999. The cover price is $5.95 for a 48-page prestige format book. There are two covers to this book. Uh, the more common and readily available one is actually considered cover B, uh, which is weird, it's sort of like the variant, but that one is drawn by Phil Winslade, who is the uh, interior artist for this book. That cover shows Ant-Man and the Wasp at shrunken size. Ant-Man is riding an ant, and Wasp is flying toward the reader. In the background is an extreme close-up of a Christmas tree. We see the pine needles, the colored lights, and the ornaments strung up on the branches. What do you think of this cover, Kyle? This is the cover I have, and I absolutely love this cover. It's gorgeous, definitely invokes uh, the feeling of Christmas. For me, it hits a nice little nostalgia button, because one of my favorite Christmas-themed shorts as a kid was Pluto's Christmas Tree. Uh, we yes. had that taped off a of TV, along with the, uh, there was one, you know, was, was Michael Eisner, is that his name? That uh, used to be like the 90s Disney guy. Yeah. Every time they'd have a live action special. So we had like uh, some Disney Christmas thing that was taped off, I'm sure, ABC back in the day. Um, And, you know, he was host and they had, you know, the big life size Mickey and Minnie from Disney World in there and stuff. And so we had the Pluto's Christmas tree on it and then um, Mickey's Christmas Carol was on it. And then there was uh, Donald Snowball fight. I love that one. That's hilarious. There was always a part of that that confused me. And now <laughs> looking at that part through older eyes, that's probably why that one isn't uh, uploaded on uh, Disney Plus. <laughs> but but, uh, but yeah, um, anyway, Pluto's Christmas tree. I always love that once they bring the, the tree back inside and they decorate it and stuff. But my favorite part there is just Chip and Dale wandering around inside the Christmas tree along the branches and get the yep. beautiful uh, cell painting in the back with like the light bulbs lit up and the you know the shiny uh, ceramic balls and stuff and that's definitely what this reminds me of and so i love that yeah i i hadn't even made the connection but i totally get it too and I've, I've watched that uh i've watched that short recently too um yeah and i yeah i i remember that one that was always attached to the uh, mickey's christmas carol so i used to grow i love that little little short and you're right that's what this reminds me of just being that close like almost inside the tree that close to like the electric lights and the ornaments and everything lit up yeah yeah, very, very cool. Um, the other cover to this book, which is strangely considered cover A, even though it's sort of the variant, which is harder to come by, this cover is by Jay Lee, and I guess it only had a print run of 5,000 copies. And the reason I know that is because I have a copy which is signed and sealed. It has a Dynamic Forces like holographic sticker sealing it as well as a certificate of authenticity um so i have not like opened this up or read this because it's all it's all sealed but it's the dynamic forces incorporated has or yeah incorporated has issued this certificate to authenticate this copy of ant-man's big christmas dynamic forces christmas cover as one of a specially limited series of 5,000 copies and this is certificate number 1966 so uh, the Jay Lee cover, Jay Lee style, so it's very interesting, but we see a young boy, a, a little child in the foreground, reaching up to Ant-Man, who is small, about the size of the kid's hand, and Ant-Man is holding onto the corner of a poster, like the thumbtack is coming out, and the wasp is behind the kid, and actually it's it's Janet in her old, like, George Perez white and blue costume that, like, only had, like, one leg or something showing. Um, the poster on the kid's wall is of the Avengers, and we see Thor, Captain America, Vision, and Hawkeye. And then 
He has two other posters on the wall, like nailed to the wall, and it's Wolverine and Spider-Man, which is weird because they have nothing. They're well, actually, Spider-Man does make a cameo appearance in this, just in the background. But um, that kind of it seems like this is almost like the new Avengers, but it's before Wolverine and, and Spider-Man joined the team. I like this cover, except for the way the title is with Ant-Man's Big Christmas and how how kind of low it comes. It really kind of obscures the A of Captain America's helmet, and you don't really get the the sense of the wings on this. So at a glance, it it almost looks like it's Black Bolt. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, cool, cool. She so said your copy's still sealed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, because I was curious, you know, inside the the cover, then we have a black and white version of the cover B there. I was curious if inside of that one it was also a black and white version of cover B or if it would be a black and white version of cover A. That is a or good, an ad or something else. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, and I'm not going to find out. <laughs> not right now, anyway. Okay, All right, getting into the story. The story is written by Bob Gale, who you may recognize as the writer of the Back to the Future movies, as well as a few other things. Uh, it was illustrated by Phil Winslade, lettered by Richard Starkings, along with Comicraft, colored by Richard Eisenhove, and edited by Joe Quesada, Jimmy Palmiotti. There are also a couple of inkers who assisted the backgrounds with Phil Winslade, including Jimmy Palmiotti, Tom Palmer, and Nelson DeCastro. Alright, getting into it. The Avengers and the New Warriors are decorating Avengers Mansion for the holidays. Downstairs in his lab, Hank Pym, in his Goliath costume, finds a canister of B6, a version of his shrinking gas that he thought went missing years ago. Janet comes in and tells Hank that she agreed they would do Christmas with her family. Hank is not enthusiastic about this, believing Jan's family hates him. The couple argues about whose family is worse when Captain America comes in, giving them a card selected from the pile of Make a Christmas Wish with the Avengers charity pile. A kid named Larry Magruder has asked Ant-Man and the Wasp to come save his Christmas from his family of jerks. Arranging a phone call between an adult superhero and a random 12-year-old turns out to be more challenging than Hank and Jan expected, so they just fly a Quinjet out to Bainbridge, Pennsylvania a few days before Christmas. Outfitted as Ant-Man and the Wasp, they appear in Larry's room and ask how they can make the boys' holiday better. Larry just wants them to show up so he can feel like a big shot who knows celebrities, which is not the greatest plan or use for their abilities, but he did request these two, and not Iron Man or Thor. Ant-Man and the Wasp shrink down to observe Larry and his parents eat dinner. The heroes engage in some broad physical comedy with the oversized food, while we hear Larry's mom plead for the family not to see their relatives this year. Larry begs his parents to keep their promise and have the extended family over. After dinner, Hank and Jan watch home movies of the relatives, noting how awful and obnoxious six of them are. Hank and Jan decide they will come back on Christmas and basically pull pranks on the relatives so they will change their wicked behavior. Before they leave, however, they shrink Larry down and take him on an ant-sized flight around the house, around the Christmas tree, the liquor cabinet, etc., on Christmas morning, Ant-Man and the Wasp return to the Magruder house with six canisters of the B6 gas that wears off in ten minutes, one case for each of the awful relatives. The first target is Larry's great-aunt Sadie, who smokes foul-smelling cigars and is generally a horribly unpleasant woman. 
the heroes shrink her down to bug size, and Larry puts her in a plastic bin with a rotten orange, a rotten fish head, and some dog poop until she passes out. Hank and Jan caution Larry that he might have crossed the line there. When Sadie wakes up at full size, Hank and Jan whisper into her ear to leave and never smoke her cigars in the house again. Next up is the kind of pervy Uncle Elmer who sneaks into Larry's mom's room to touch her underwear. They shrink him down, tape him to the inside of her bra, and fling him around the room. Jan has a lot of fun with this one. When Elmer reverts to normal size, he runs out and drives home. Next is Cousin Martha, who always brings uninvited guests. This time, it's an existential studies group who just spouts depressing crap. Larry shrinks her and puts her in a bin with some guests of his own, a bunch of beetles that look terrifying at her size, but they aren't dangerous. Then they shrink the blowhard Uncle Harley, who always acts tough and insults Larry's dad. They put him in the bin with Cousin Martha and the Beatles to see if he's really that tough, but he crawls over her and even tries to throw her back in to save himself. One by one, those two are resized but sworn to change their ways. Finally is the twin boys, Ned and Ted, who terrorize Larry, but he decides not to shrink them. He wants to handle them by himself rather than rely on Pym Particles. Larry leads the boys into the garage, sets a Home Alone-style trap, and incapacitates them. Then he ties them up, dumps sugar water on them, and then a bunch of ants. He videotapes them saying nice things about him and bad things about themselves. Then he releases them so they'll go home with their parents. With all of the relatives gone, Larry's parents are pretty happy, but also confused. Larry leads them into the basement to give them one other present. He shrinks them down using the unused canisters of B6 next to his dad's model train set, which is a whole elaborate village with houses and mountain landscapes. Hank shrinks Larry, too, and the three Magruders ride the toy train around the model village. After that, the Magruders welcome Hank and Jan for Christmas dinner. They invite them back again next year, but Hank and Jan are already thinking about spending next Christmas with their in-laws and the lumps of coal that they could deliver to them. And that was Ant-Man's Big Christmas. So, uh, big picture, Kyle, what did you think of the story? I absolutely love it. So, to peel back the curtain a little bit, I had never heard of this one probably about a month ago. Um, it was actually two days uh, probably before we recorded the Elvira Christmas uh episode segment there for midnight mm-hmm. um that uh, i've been looking uh, i've been really going back and, and revisiting the uh heroes return era of marvel i think that's a hidden golden age that i really love been ripping through that avengers run and was looking for ancillary titles uh, kind of set in that era and i came across this uh, ant-man one uh, around 2004 so hit up one of the local comic shops over uh, black friday and found it and got it at uh, 40 percent off so it's still 40% off from eight bucks, which that thud you heard was uh, <laughs> Professor Allen feigning, but uh, definitely worth it still for even at the price of 480 or whatever that math is. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I had a big smile on my face then when you, you brought it up after we got done recording. Hey, have you ever read uh, <laughs> <laughs> Christmas? I was like, oh my God, I just found this thing. And I hadn't gotten a chance to read it at that point, but uh, I read it a few days later. And oh my God, this is now in my top five favorite Christmas comic stories. 
which should really mean something because I've read hundreds of <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Christmas comic stories. And this is up there as one of my favorite. Oh my God, it was, it was hilarious. Uh, I mean, it's not, right, they're not fighting Ultron or Kang or anything like that, but it's still pretty action packed and a lot of physical comedy here. And uh, Bob Gale just nails all the characters' voices, including the, the brief little interaction we see with the Avengers and stuff, which tells me he must be quite the Avengers comic fan, maybe of old. Sure, and, yeah. uh, Man, it was it was a blast. So entertaining, and I I reread it uh, the other night to uh, get some notes, and I didn't even uh, realize my wife was out there sitting in the in the kitchen while I was reading it. And she leaned over, "What are you laughing about?" <laughs> I was laughing pretty hard while I was uh, rereading it. So uh, it's great. Yeah, it was really good time because I I had been planning on just doing this as a solo Find Your Joy episode and everything, and it just happened. I was like, have you ever read this one? Because I don't know anybody else who's ever talked about this or ever heard of this one, so it was great timing that you had just found it. And, and you're right, it's it's fun, it's lighthearted. They're not fighting, you know, giant like Earth, you know, threat level destructions. But again, it's that's not what you need to. That's not what you need from Ant Man and Wasp. But it's also just a fun little Christmas adventure. Um, I think it, it is great that there are, you know, actually like fun moments. They ha- they actually have fun with the, using the shrinking ability and the size and everything from, you know, being able to pull pranks and, and get back at these kind of nasty, creepy in-laws. And we'll kind of talk about the nature of those little things a little bit more. Um, but also just like when they're just taking a tour around the house and everything like that, when they take Larry around the first time. It's just fun. You get to see like what type of scientific adventure that could be. And then at the end of this sweet and wholesome moment when his dad has this model train set, that's this whole little thing. And, and I mean, it harkens back to the end of the climactic battle in the first Ant-Man movie when, you know, uh, Scott and, and Yellow Jacket are fighting on the train set. But this one is so kind of like just pleasant and, and nice that this family gets to have this experience that they could never have under any other circumstance except that this is something that you know a character like Ant-Man could actually do for them. Getting into this uh, we kind of have to talk about just the first three pages uh, because this is kind of like the biggest the story gets in the sense of just like the scale of the cast because uh, I, I simplified it as just the Avengers and the New Warriors are helping to decorate Avengers Mansion. The first page uh, it, it's just a splash. We see Iron Man, Thor, and Vision, who is phasing through the wall, just hanging up signs and decorations outside the wall, on the on the outside, as we see like the snow-covered windows. But once you get inside, I mean, it's not Perez caliber, but it's, I mean, it's pretty impressive of like this double-page spread of how many characters he gets involved in the, the layout of this thing. And we get a bunch of little inset panels, but we see... Beast and Vance Astro hang uh, the stars and like ornaments up on the Christmas tree, along with Firestar and Nova. They're down there. Um, Hawkeye is walking in. He's talking to Captain America. Speedball, Rage, uh, Black Panther. They're all getting set up. Wanda and Wonder Man are like taking opening boxes of lights that they're unstringing. The Wasp is in the background hanging up stockings. Spider-Man is in the wall in the background like hanging up uh, garland or tinsel. Um, uh, Black Knight comes in. It looks like he's got like trays full of hot cocoa. Uh, Night Thrasher and uh, uh, Quicksilver are walking down the stairs. Up at the top of the stairs, we see Black Widow and Jarvis kind of watching this whole thing. And then we've got these inset panels, and we see uh, Vance and Firestar looking at... Um, 
up of posters. There's a, one of the Fantastic Four. There's one that looks like it's got uh, Stan Lee on it saying Happy Holidays, True Believer. There's a Christmas card from Nelson and Murdoch, Attorneys at Law. Uh, and then there are other inset panels of you know Black Knight, uh, Wanda and, and Simon having trouble with the lights. Thor throw, having a snowball fight with the new warriors. Um, Vision trying to bake like Christmas dinner and just like like the smoke pouring out of the oven. It's just like just so much fun. It is just so much life. My, my favorite one there is uh, Beast trying to uh, look up a recipe. It looks like for uh, some sort of holiday drink, and while he's not paying attention, <laughs> Thor's leaning behind him and like spiking the eggnog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like trying to. Make it. Yeah, it's just. I mean, there's just so much going on in these two pages. It's just so fun. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's great, and you nailed it. It is very uh, Perez layout wise. It reminds me of. It's very early in the run. Um, there's a like an opening scene where the Avengers are coming in to meet. Maybe it's with Shield or some other government organization, and you're in like this control the Shield control center, and you're looking at it from the top down. There's all these staircases and stuff, and the yeah. Avengers are walking in. It yeah. reminded me a lot of that. And uh, there's actually a documentary. I think it's just titled Avengers Assemble. That's one of the special features on the uh, Ultimate Avengers uh, animated movie DVD, and on that. Uh, most of the documentary is actually focused around the uh, Perez and Busick run. And in that Perez says that is like the single, his single favorite page he did for, in the entire run. And that's what I instantly thought of when I, when I looked at this double page splash. Yeah. yeah. I can see that too now because it is an overhead shot and he's sort of using, using the curvature of the winding staircase uh, as kind of the border of the page. And it also has like the, the, the uh, the inset panels they're sort of rounded almost like ornament shaped kind of going around the curve of that so yeah the layout of this is really fun uh, then we get into the page when we get you know while everybody else is doing this Hank is alone in his lab you know working on his stuff um, and Janet comes in Hank is in his Goliath costume this is the during that era the the blue and yellow one Janet is in her costume from this era which is black with just the kind of gold almost V sort of carapace like uh, spot like just right over her right around her breasts this is not my favorite wasp outfit I, there's a version of this that I like more that has just more gold in it but I don't really like this version of the costume because it's just too black I see I always think of Janet as a more colorful character who wants to draw more attention to herself and this seems more like a like a black widow spy type of get up yeah, this uh, this costume would be very in line with like the costume the X Men were running around in this yeah, time, yeah. which is kind of a reaction to the Fox movies. I think it's it's a very early two thousands uh, costume. When we get into the scene, like the first time I read this, I was kind of like this scene kind of I don't want to say it made me nervous, but I'm not crazy about their dialogue in this scene just because like when they're fighting over you know whose family is worst and your in laws and they hate me and everything like that. It just felt to me very much kind of like a 90s sitcom or romantic comedy movie with a couple fighting over kind of generic stuff, fighting over like the tropes you have of like a married couple that fights over stuff like this. Like it just seemed very like, ah, uh, this is kind of like a, a shtick that I'm used to hearing a lot. And it's kind of generic. It's like Four Christmases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, that kind of made, I was like, all right, this is sort of a bad omen. However, 
Once they get into the bedroom, I thought the dialogue loosened up and it felt very natural and really good. And I, I like that scene. That's not the only thing that loosened up. <laughs> you know, we do get a nice shot of Jan half you know, half naked in just her, you know, bra and panties and then putting on like a, a nightie and everything like that. She looks good, of course. Um, in, in my head canon here, you asked uh, Shag to do this with you first. <laughs> and he got to page nine here and disappeared and no one's heard from him since yeah. He he never even finished the rest of the story. Yeah, um, but I, you know I like I like Janet poking fun of Hank and how lost he is in his own head and his science and how he's kind of barely sociable and like that. Uh, and then I just I I kind of uh, even though it it sort of felt cliche, I'm trying to think of like how this would have played out. You know, in you know 1999 when this was first written, but when he tries to call you know this kid and this whole little comedy of errors of getting on the phone um and like the mom's like who is it like you're a grown man trying to call my teenage my you know impressionable young son it's like what are you trying to talk about and and then janet tries calling she's like i'll have better luck so she's gonna impersonate a girl from the school and that doesn't go any better so i just thought this was kind of like a fun little funny scene yeah oh very much agree yeah going back to the dialogue in the bedroom i, I thought that was great that was very genuine and i thought and uh it was humorous and back and forth and just kind of the you know, it's not like it's a real uh, deep conversation or anything like that, but it's like, oh, yeah, no. That's the type of thing, like, my wife and I talk about as we're getting ready for bed and stuff at night and kind of the, the back and forth there. So that felt very uh, organic and natural. And, yeah, it was pretty funny then uh, Hank getting shut down, talking to his mom on the phone, and then Jan getting past his mom, but then once getting to uh, Larry and him like, yeah, right, <laughs> thinking it's the neighbor girl and I'll never talk to you again. And, yeah, it's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once we actually see inside Larry's room, something uh, I'm sure a lot of us can relate to, he's got Avengers poster and he's got Avengers toys. He's got, you know, bookshelves with his action figures up there. Definitely looks like he's got, like, first appearance Ant-Man and Wasp. Uh, there looks like there's a classic Iron Man, Thor, there's a, oh, that must be Hulk, the big one in the back. Yeah. Yeah, there's a Spidey, like, up on a box in yep, a crouch yep. position. Uh, and there's it looks like a Spider-Man, like, mug mm-hmm. underneath kind of the behind the lamp there. And there's a Captain America up there. And there's another Spider-Man hanging down from, like, the arm of the lamp. Yeah. I think there's a first appearance Iron Man, too. Yeah. Kind of classic. Uh, yeah. Phil Winslade, I, I looked him up. He actually, he did a ton, of, like, prior to this, he was actually doing a lot more stuff for Vertigo. He was doing some Vertigo series and um, and he, he really did a lot more DC stuff more than Marvel. Although he did have a run on Daredevil, I think too. Oh, okay. Um, this would have been actually it would have been, I think he did a run on Daredevil between Kevin Smith and Brian Michael Bendis's run. Um, so after Kevin Smith left, uh, which I think he only did eight issues, uh, and then Bendis came in with like issue twenty eight, thirty, something around there. Uh, with uh, Alex Maleve. So somewhere in between there, this guy, Phil Winslade, I think, had like six issues. Okay. The the physical comedy stuff at dinner with Ant-Man and Wasp, like, shrunken down, like, play, interacting with the food, it's interesting to look at. It's kind of... It, it was one of those things that this seems like it would be funny for, like, uh, like a movie or something like that, just kind of like a comedy movie, because it's... Why are they even interacting with the food or something like this? But it is something to contrast visually with the dinner dialogue, so... It, I'm not sure it works, but it's not its not bad. It's just kind of interesting. It's funny. Yeah, and I mean, the very 
they're not that small, right? I mean, they're, they're visible <laughs> for, for us for scale-wise. And, you know, his mom and dad are so wrapped up in their conversation, they completely miss him. His dad almost skewers him with a fork, and then Hank's hanging on his mustache, and he doesn't even notice, and falls right. down into his mashed potatoes. And right. stuff. So right. it's, but, um, but yeah, I think this whole thing would make it, like, a great, like, animated special. I don't know why, you know, they need uh, original content for Disney+. Plus. They could make a little half-hour uh, Ant-Man Christmas special uh, cartoon. Yeah, That'd be great. I think they can adapt to this one pretty easily, yeah. There's a part in here that kind of struck me. Janet has a line about being surprised that Larry's mom hasn't sued for divorce based on her, her, uh, his dad's family. That's kind of a crappy thing to say in front of a kid. I yeah. like, I, like, okay, that, that seems like a thing that's like you'd think, but you wouldn't say that in front of a kid. Like, that just doesn't feel natural. But, um, hey, yeah, Larry, your mom's marriage sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, the thing about that, though, is it does spark a line from Larry in response, though, that his mom has been in counseling, maybe marriage counseling, we don't know, um, which I think puts more pressure on him to save his parents. So it does kind of go to what his whole motivation is, how, how important this is for him. So then we get like, actually before we get into the in-laws, cause that's kind of like the, the whole thing with like the last half of the story, something that I noticed all of the scenes when Hank and Janet are driving, whenever they're in the car, Janet is the one driving. Well, speaking from experience and Hank is a lucky guy cause I have to drive everywhere. And I just think <laughs> of how much stuff I could get done if my wife would drive and I could, work off my phone or read or whatever and it's yeah i just anyway. yeah i just thought it was interesting i mean it's nice that you, i mean it's giving her something to do it's giving janet more more activity in this but i just kind of thought that was funny just like based on the nature like why i don't know especially since he he's flying the quinjet and everything like that but yeah she's the one driving the car i don't know why i can't like explain why it seems weird but it just seems kind of interesting that she's the one driving so so, all right. So, just getting into these the, the relatives, and I, I kind of described how we've got each one. There's the Aunt Sadie who smokes and just smells terrible, and Larry just putting her in there with putting her in this bin with a dead fish head, a rotten orange dog poop, and everything. And it's like this is he he has these bits where he comes close to looking like really like sadistic, like he might cross the line, but he doesn't and and i think it's important that you know larry has his own little hero journey in this um and he he's able to stand up to the bullies and not rely on the superpowers that he's getting from these guys and i think that's really really cool because he knows he can't just be someone who clings to big shots he has to you know stand on his own two feet and stand up to them and i think the way he does it is is pretty inventive and good so yeah i agree that was a nice little arc from him to going from thinking and, that uh associating with the heroes makes him a big shot to being a hero on his own and making exactly. his own way yeah. and the thing about all of the relatives you know there's like the, the kind of pervy uncle who like likes to touch his, his mom's underwear there's the uh, the cousin who always invites unexpected like again friends like all big groups of people these are extended relatives and, and family members that they're, they're, they sort of have universal problems, but they always see. They also seem a little bit specific. Like Bob Gale might have been writing from personal life, <laughs> um, but I, I certainly I, I I can see shades of, of family in some of these people too. So it's it's certainly they're they're not so specific that you can't say yeah yeah that's yeah we we've got some of those in our family. See, my neither my or Cassie's family is really all that bad. There's uh, 
like one person on both sides. It's maybe a couple of these personality traits rolled into uh, a single person. And typically, uh, both of our family gatherings are big enough that you just got to consciously be aware to be on the opposite right side of the room with that person. <laughs> so, uh, you're lucky. You're lucky. <laughs> which maybe that just means I don't have any awareness and I'm that person. <laughs> <laughs> Gatherings. Oh, great. Kyle's here again. You look around the poker table and you can't tell who the sucker is. That's who it yeah. is. Um, overall, the, the story, it's got these shades of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Home Alone, uh, these kind of you know family-friendly adventure movies and everything, and I think that's what they're going for, and I think it really, really works. And as you mentioned, as you alluded to earlier, I think the best Christmas present I could ask for is within this story – there is no reference or hint of spousal abuse or the slap or anything like that. Um, you you wouldn't know that you know Jan and Hank have been on the rocks before that they've had troubles and everything like that. Uh, I, I think that's fine because it it's not relevant to the story. It's just it's good. Yep, agreed. Uh, any other things that you want to hit on? Like any other details you want to? No, I mean this was just a blast and it's hilarious. <sighs> The 99.9% of the art is just absolutely gorgeous. I'm just not, uh, I'm just not a fan of how Winslade uh, draw, draws uh, Hank's face, honestly, out of, out of the mask, which is really too bad because I feel like, you know, so, so much of the, the story happens out of the mask, right? And he gives each one of these characters, all these relatives, distinct faces and very emotional and expressive faces and stuff. But there are some panels like back early on in the story where like Hank's in his lab and stuff where... He almost looks like sloth out of Goonies. I mean, <laughs> I feel bad saying that because the rest of it is just so perfect. And it's just like, oh, he's just kind of got dirt face a lot. And yeah, I don't know. It, it, it kind of actually the first thing that popped in my mind when I saw how he drew Hank's face was uh, how Ralph Dibney's face was drawn. I believe it was by uh, Regs Morales oh, in yeah, yeah. Identity Crisis, like at the funeral where he can't compose himself and his face starts to, yeah, that, you know, he loses control of it and kind of gets all mushy and starts to run. There's a few panels in here that remind me of that. That page when uh, when Janet is shrinking down for the first time and everything, and his like face is all big and it's just like hanging. He's like he looks so shocked and freaking out, like he's never seen that before. It's kind of weird. Um, and then yeah, there are other shots like when they're in the cars, when his jaw looks like just really like protruding and jutting out. Like it's there's a few things. But the last, not the last page, but the the second and third to last page is just the the double page spread of the uh, of the town with the train set and everything, and uh, and the family getting on board and everything. I just think those those two pages are really really cool. I love that. Yeah, my only nitpick is I wish it was like a Christmas village uh, train yeah. set to yeah. kind of fully tie that theme together and have a little. Uh, flocking or frosting there on the, the trees and the houses and stuff. That would have been right. pretty cool. Some lights and stuff like that. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. All right. Um, I know that you've been reading a ton of the Busiek Perez Avengers, and you've also been reading a bunch of the classic Avengers. Do you have a favorite uh, Ant-Man, either Hank Pym or not Hank Pym, favorite Ant-Man story? Uh, it's just kind of tough, to I think, to beat. And a lot of it is just because it was probably my big, fully immersive, long-term exposure to the Avengers I mean, right around the time I was, I was getting, sorry, it's the, the Busick Perez run. Part of that is uh, as I was first getting into that, I, I did get uh, some of the essentials uh, as a kid uh, for Christmas uh, around that time and had, I think, the first two or three, uh, first two um, Avengers essentials, most of that Stanley writing. Um, if you go back and listen to the Make Ours Marvel podcast when they cover those early Avengers stories, yep. some of those are, are kind of hard to get 
through. And so that one certain, uh, reading the, the essentials there's, uh, from the Stanley run certainly didn't, uh, hook me as, as an Avengers uh, fan, but the, the Busick and Perez run did. And Jan and Hank have a lot of kind of, I guess, freedom, uh, in that, uh, that whole, whole run. They're constantly, I would say they're, they're mainstay characters, but they're probably only at about half of the issues, you know, they pop in and out for be in for two issues and then out for kind of off doing their own thing. And, they're just fun, enjoyable characters. The book's definitely better for when they're in there. And then uh, I think that probably comes into culmination during the Avengers Forever run when we get that era of Hank and Jan on top of um, Yellow Jacket um, from right after the end of Avengers 59 when he yeah. first kind of has the snap and is ejected and playing you know, Hank at one of his worst there. Yeah, Super really. machismo, kind of understandable versus this era, Hank, and just seeing that maturity side by side there and how the characters interact uh that's a pretty great story uh, to really kind of dive into the adventure of hank Pym. i think he's a cool character uh he's a biochemist i love that all the guys in marvel are a lot of the main heroes especially those early sword age heroes are, are kind of scientists and smart guys my degree is in biochemistry so nice little resonance there you know what hank does in the pages of avengers is a hell of a lot more exciting than anything i've ever done <laughs> with biochemistry so um yeah it's a fun, enjoyable character, uh, it's, and I think really where he flourishes is stories like this or like that that run when you just get past the damn slap thing and uh, not make that the focal point of the character, which some creators unfortunately are are unwilling to do. Yeah, how about yourself? I, I, again, there's a lot a lot of things that you mentioned. Um, I actually because I just read it recently um, within the pages of West Coast Avengers right before Steve Englehart left the book. The, one of the last stories that he wrote um, was a, a multi-part uh, saga called called Tales to Astonish, um, and it, it involved like Hank Pym and some of his not very interesting rogues from the from the original like uh, Tales to Astonish like a book and everything like his his first appearances and everything, but. Uh, he goes across. He goes to Europe, basically looking for signs that his first wife may still be alive. Um, and it just—it's—it's it's a cool story that kind of like focuses on him and his past. And you get to see him now. At that point, he's not Ant Man. He's more of the Professor Pym adventurer. But he uses his uh, the Pym particle tech to shrink and enlarge things and everything like that. And and he has this moment where he's being tracked by all the other Avengers, and he has to kind of get away from them. And you really see. And it's kind of cool because that same type of gimmick was used in the movies, like when they got like the little discs that shrink and enlarge things and everything. And and it, it's kind of funny how that uh, that really kind of comes through in in that little arc. Um, but my favorite, my absolute favorite story uh, with Hank as Ant Man is in Avengers ninety three, which is right in the middle of the Kree Skrull War, uh, and that is the issue drawn by Neil Adams because like the first. The half or the first third of that double-sized issue is the vi- something is wrong with the vision, and Hank Pym as Ant-Man has to go inside the vision to like figure out what's wrong with him. And it's it's a crazy it's a the type of thing where the shrinking hero has to go inside the body. I mean, we saw that in Batman: The Brave and the Bold when Adam and Aquaman went inside Batman when he was poisoned by chemo or chemo. Um, but this one, just because it's drawn by Neil freaking Adams, drawing Ant-Man at that size, and you know, it's just, it's just him being, you know, like a scientific Indiana Jones running through like cybernetic, you know, the hardware inside the Vision. It's just really, really cool. God, it's been years since I've read that story. Um, that one always reminded me of, I believe it's the episode Microbots, season two of Transformers, where 
Megatron has the heart of yes. Cybertron. He's going to sl- just slaughter the Autobots and then Perceptor Brawn and Bumblebee shrink down. And when the Decepticons are drunk um, from over-energizing and they slip inside him, have to go through him and yes. uh, unhook the heart yeah. before he detonates. Yeah, yeah, that was good. All right, all right. Well, uh, yeah, so once we start making allusions to Transformers, I, th- I think we're done with this story. So. Yeah. Yep. That was Ant-Man's Big Christmas. Um, Kyle, thank you very much for helping me find my joy with this one. Where else can people find you online or perhaps in the podcastosphere again? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, KBLikesComics. Well, right now it says KBLikesAvengersComics. So if you search for that, and I think it's kyle benning underscore art so at kyle benning underscore art otherwise if you go to itunes and you just search for kscgsf i started to upload some old episodes there it's kind of been sporadic i think i have eight or nine episodes up now uh, those are the first four well only four <laughs> christ on multiple earth uh, episodes i ever did and then i think i got uh, like the first five episodes of uh, the superman captain marvel power hour uh, i did um so I had episodes saved all over the place, so I'm trying to go back and find some of them. And if I can find some, uh, the flash drive that had a bunch of the old uh, Christmas episodes on, probably try to get some of those up here in the last uh, 10 days or so before Christmas. Um, But if you go out there, there's, I don't know, a couple hours worth of listening uh, now. And then at some point in January, I should have uh, new episodes uh, dropping. I have a couple in the can already that's really just going to be following – I consider to be a hidden gold, hidden area era of uh, gold comics uh, from Marvel, which would be in the uh, post Heroes Reborn, so the post Heroes Return uh, era there, mm-hmm. like the uh, Busick and Perez Avengers run, which we mentioned so many times during this podcast, and where this uh, Ant Man story pops from. Had some really awesome runs there between uh, Jurgens and Ramit on Thor, and Mark Wade and Ron Garney on Cap, and Busick Perez on Avengers, and. So uh, I'm diving back into that stuff, checking out a lot of books from that era that I've never read before, and probably have uh, some episodes pop up that cover you know five to six issues at a time. So sometime January or February, those new episodes should be going up and hopefully be coming up on a fairly regular basis. So. Are you going to get into the Thunderbolts from that era? Yes, that will actually pro- – I'm going to do like an intro episode, and then there will probably be two – episodes of thunderbolts really before i get into anything else um so it'll be an episode or two of thunderbolts uh the heroes for hire uh series was run at that time there'll be an episode or two of that probably cover heroes return and then jump into avengers and captain america and i'm not recording episodes in order either i'm kind of recording them as i yeah. as i read so i have like almost all my avengers episodes recorded even though some of those will be like a year from now before they come out so um but yeah, I'm um, just diving in and reading like four runs at a time. It, it's pretty amazing going through that Avengers run and just how well it kind of marked the passing of time in the Marvel Universe at that time. Yeah. I mean, Busick, I think, was definitely up there at his prime there between what he was doing on Avengers and, and Thunderbolts and Iron Man. And then shortly after that, he would go take over uh, and launch Conan at, at Dark Horse. And that was like my favorite Conan stuff ever. Um, yeah. So, But he, he was I mean, great. I, I, I just, think he was even doing Astro City on his own in the background during that whole time. Yes, too. yes, he was. Yep. And, uh, yeah, he's just awesome at seeding in little bits. So as characters enter and leave the book, you're still getting, you know, enough information to kind of know what's going on, keep tabs with them, what's going on in their own uh, solo books. So you don't necessarily have to follow them, um, but um, it gives you kind of the Cliff Notes version to to stay in tune with the characters. And 
I don't know if there's really a, another time where you can really get a good snapshot of what's going on in the Marvel Universe just by reading the Avengers title as you could right then and there. So that's one of the, the reasons it's so appealing to me as well. All right, man. Well, uh, thank you. I, I'm really looking forward to that, uh, and I'm sure our listeners are too. So, Kyle, thank you again for coming back uh, for your second helping of Christmas Comics. Listeners, as always, I want to thank you for tuning in as well. If you liked our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting this post on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. For more information on how you can support the network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and have a safe and happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Kyle. Merry Christmas, Ryan. Safe travels, man. Watching it a-coming down, all around On the fields and the farms and the road to town And I'm thinking up a letter that I'm writing in my head Christmas card to all the folks I love Instead of letting the postman ring it I decided I'd rather sing it Especially for you, for you To you and all your family, your neighbors and your friends Christmas card to you and all your family.